today we have a rather short session. Chapters 15 and 16 are rather short, but that doesn't mean that they're not important. Uh, what I've tried to do is to break up the book of Revelation into uh, parts that uh, kind of fit together, you might say, and then uh, once we go into a new section, it's somewhat of a um, different content. Anyways, I, and I hope that helps in a way, because if you take this book and you read it all the way through, by the time you get to the end of it, you're so confused that um, you forget what, the, what it said in the beginning. And I find that that is the wrong way, really, to study Revelation. You've got to take it a small part at a time and see what that's all about, and then carry it forward. All right. Uh, so that is what we're going to do now. Even though I sometimes will skip through a certain section, that doesn't mean that it's not important. It just means that much of Revelation is repeating itself. And as I've said before, one of the techniques of Jewish writing of this period of time was to repeat things that were important. It was the only way they had to emphasize. Or at that time period, that was the only way that they could really uh, put the importance on a given subject was to repeat it many times. And in this case, we are repeating uh, the so-called plagues of Moses uh, three times under the titles of the seals, the trumpets, and now today the bowls. All right. And that's what really they are. The reason, you know, you have three sets, as I've said before, is that the um, sacred numbers of Jewish culture were three, seven, and twelve. A lot of people will say, well, what about forty? No, forty was not a sacred number. Forty was a convenience number in literary writing because there was no way to judge exactly uh, a given time period. We didn't have the uh, calendars as we have today. And there weren't any universal calendars because we're talking about several different um, company or countries. Excuse me, I'm going to turn this thing down. It's a little warm there. That'll go off in a minute. So, in order to emphasize, as I said before, the author repeats himself, and that's what we have here. It would be sufficient to say that, uh, particularly the trumpets and now the bowls, were very important in themselves to tell us that God in his infinite wisdom and understanding has warned us that certain certain lifestyles, certain sins, really, in the long run, certain ways of behaving were not acceptable to him, and that there was dire punishment due 
Now I want to read a couple things. The Gospel from last Sunday. This is out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, the end of it. And you've heard this over and over and over, but I want to, uh, I want to emphasize by repeating it, you might say. Um, this is the story where, no, it's not a story so much, it's a teaching. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that is, the, at the end of time, and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne, and all the nations will be assembled before him, and he will separate them one from the other, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. All right, we're talking about the sheep as being the faithful who accepted him, and the goats are those people who either rejected or just plain ignored the teachings of God. All right? Now I'm going, not going to go into all of the verbiage here. This is where he says. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me the food, and I was thirsty, etc., etc. You all have heard that many, many times, okay? And then I'm going to skip over to the next part, because I want to get to the end of this, which is really the important part here. So he says, when did you see, then uh, when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you, and so forth and so on. And he says, when you did it for the least of my brethren, or my children, you then did it for me. And then he says, he will then turn to those on the left, that is, the goats, okay? Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And this is what Revelation is repeating again. Okay. For I was thirsty or hungry and brother, and you gave me no food, and I was thirsty and you gave me no drink, etc., etc. You all have heard that many times. And then they will say, well, we never heard you, we never did this, and so forth and so on. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of hue and cry at the end of the world when God separates those who were faithful from those who were not. All right. He will then say, Amen, I say to you, what you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did it not for me. And these will go off to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The point I'm making here is that so many people say, well, I don't believe that God would send anybody to hell. Okay? And the point we're making here is, that's right. He won't send anybody to hell. It's the individual through his ignorance, his ignoring God, or rejecting God and his teachings that sends himself there. Is that clear? Right. And that is what Revelation is trying to tell us. Uh, you know, you can sort of skip over the spooky stuff that uh, often is here. I know that uh, 
when you filled out your registration form, there is a section in there that uh, asks for comments that would help us uh, in developing this course, etc. And believe me, I do read those. And I recall one person writing, and I won't mention uh, the person by name, but I remember one person saying that in school uh, they learned about the book of Revelation and it really scared the wits out of them. Uh, that was the words that they used. I think they might have been even a little more strong, uh, a little stronger. Uh, but nevertheless, they were really frightened by the way it was taught and the meaning. And the only frightening thing about this book as you will find, I'm sure, or have already found, is that if you don't take the message seriously, then you are putting yourself in, pardon the expression, but deep doo-doo. Right? You all get that message? So that's the only frightening, apart, frightening about this whole book. It's the message that should be frightening everybody to make sure that they are not on the wrong side of the fence, one of the goats. Okay. Is that clear? That's so important to get that point. You know, this whole idea of, of the bowls and the trumpets and so forth and so on, that's part of a apocalyptic literature. It's like our science fiction. But it is meant to entice us as a style of writing. It is not meant to scare the wits out of you. Unless you're on the wrong side of the fence. Okay. But the intention here is really saying, look, Boys and girls, men and women, I have told you many, many times that there are only, there's only one way to get to heaven, and that is through the teachings and the church of Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me, meaning through his teachings and through the church. And if you reject that, uh, just recently uh, I was in amongst a group of people and the conversation came around to something similar like this. And a few of the people said, well, I just think all you have to do is be a good person. Well, that sounds good, but being a good person is very subjective. In other words, if you ask ten different people what being a good person really meant, you'd probably get ten different answers. Right? What we're saying is that there are certain things that you must believe in order to be that good person. So it's not enough just to go to church on Sunday and, uh, you know, say good morning to your next door neighbor and, and that's about it. There are other things involved. 
And it is up to each one of us to pray for enlightenment as to what those other things are because they might be different for each one of us. Remember, God takes the talents that he gave us and if we are open to him, he will use those talents and each one will be used in a different way. So you can't just put everybody into the same category and say, oh, well, I'm just a good person and therefore I'm sure I've got to go to heaven. Okay. Well, I would certainly hope so, but there's no guarantee. Okay. Any questions? Gee, I've frightened you already, right? All right. Now, it's not, it's not something that we have to dwell on or be concern, overly concerned with to the point where, um, you know, it, it makes us nervous. But that wouldn't hurt. The thing is, all you have to do is to pray and sincerely say, Lord, I open my mind and my heart to you. Use me as you wish and mean it because, believe me, it will work. It will come. Not right away. And he's not going to make you do something that is entirely foreign to you and your circumstances in life. He will use you right where you are so that it will become part of your natural operations, your daily routines, etc. Let's get into chapter 15 here. I'm going to back up even though the assignment was starting at uh, verse 5. I want to back up because really uh, the first few verses of chapter 15 are important to really move into the next section. Then I saw in heaven another sign, great and awe-inspiring. Seven angels with the last, with the seven last plagues. Thank God they're the last ones. I'm, you know. For through them God's fury is accomplished. And then I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. On the sea of glass were standing those who had won the victorious victory over the beast and its image. And the number that it signified its name. Now, the sea of glass is sort of the counterpoint to the sea of chaos. If you go back into the book of Genesis, where chaos reigned before wisdom was established on the first day of creation. It talks about the sea of chaos, and this is now the opposite. This is the 
antidote, you might say, uh, for that. The sea of glass represents heaven and peace. The idea of fire being there represents God's presence. On the sea of glass were standing those who had won the victory over the beast and its image and the number that signified its name, which was what? Six, 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 remember, in the previous section. They were holding God's harps, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And then this beautiful little poem is here. Now, in the book of Genesis, there is a very long prayer that is called the Song of Moses. It is sung, you might say, after the people had crossed over the uh, Red Sea on dry land and the waters had flown back, flowed back over the Egyptians. So now the Israelites were safe and they sang the hymn of Moses. You will hear that very same hymn uh, on the Saturday before Easter, the vigil at the vigil service. It is the opening prayer, which is the Song of Moses. This is called a Song of Moses, not so much because it repeats the same words, but it is in a way with the same idea that now people have crossed over from a sinful uh, way of life into a heavenly way of life, and now they are safe in heaven. Right? So they sing this song, which is called here the Song of Moses. Again, it's not a repeat of the one in Exodus. <clears throat> uh, great and wonderful are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who would not refer, who would not fear you, Lord, or glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. There we talk about revealing, the whole idea of God revealing himself. That's why the book of Revelation is called that, the revelation of who Jesus Christ really is. As I've said before, but it bears repeating, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are written from sort of a quasi-biological point of view. This man who came to earth who happened to be God. But John's gospel is sort of the reverse. God who came to earth and took the form of a man for a purpose, for a mission. And we have the same idea in the book of Revelation. The revealing of what that purpose and that mission is and the results, if we do not take it seriously, 
and grab hold. After this, I had another vision. The temple that is heavenly, that is the heavenly tent of testimony opened and the seven angels with seven plagues came out of the temple. Again, this is apocalyptic language. You should not have to, or should not really try to the meaning, uh, try to understand the meaning of every single word or phrase. Try to get the message. They were dressed in clean white linen with a gold sash around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven bowls filled with the fury of God who lives forever and ever. And then the temple became so filled with smoke from God's glory and might that no one could enter it until the seven plagues of the seven angels had been accomplished. If you read the end of the book of Exodus, it ends pretty much in the same way with the same words, meaning that after Moses had built the temple, well, I was going to say tabernacle because really it was a temple uh, made from tents, Remember, they were wandering in the desert. God told them to build the ark and do certain other things and then uh, prepare a movable temple or tabernacle. And the book of Exodus goes, uh, yeah, Exodus goes into a great deal of detail at the very end explaining how all of this was done. And then when the temple Uh, was finished and the ark was placed inside of it, God came down in the form of smoke and fire and filled the temple to the point where no one could enter uh, at that particular time. doesn't say when that was lifted, except that uh, the last phrase is something to the effect that as long as the smoke was in the temple, only Moses could go in there and they would have to all stay in whatever location they were in in the desert. But when the smoke was lifted, then they could proceed forward. All right, remember, they wandered in the desert for nearly 40 years. Why? You remember why? They knew where they were going. They were... Yes, it was God's way of not killing off a bunch of people who were involved in the uh, molten calf episode, but it was a way of not permitting them to enter the promised land because as punishment for that. He needed the people to, you know, bear children and so forth and have that group of people grow into a nation. So he needed everyone, but he would not allow those people who were involved in the molten calf episode um, 
to enter the promised land. It was a way of punishment. A lot of people say, well, God will never punish us. Well, if you were at church this morning and you uh, heard the first reading, anybody remember what the first reading in the Mass was this morning? Jonah. Jonah, that's right. Jonah, not Jonah and the whale story, but Jonah converting the city of Nineveh, a very large and wicked city. But his preaching was so effective that the city was converted. Right. But the punishment threatened was total annihilation. So God will do those things, will carry out certain punishment, and will send people to hell if they do not take advantage of the many ways that he has put out for them to do the right thing. It sounds rather harsh, but when you think about it, no, people do, God does not condemn anybody. People do it through their own laziness, uh, their total disregard, neglect, or their total rejection. Let's go on to chapter 16. You see, 15 talks about the seven bowls, the seven last plagues, but it doesn't do anything about them. Uh, 16 will take care of that. I heard a loud voice speaking from the temple to the seven angels. Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's fury upon the earth. The first angel went out and poured his bowl on the earth. Festering and ugly sores broke out on those who had the mark of the beast or worshipped its image. The second poured out his bowl on the sea. The sea turned to blood. Um... Uh, that, like that from a corpse. Every creature living in the sea died. The third bowl poured out, I mean, third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water. These also turned to blood. And then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just, O Holy One. In other words, the punishment given was just because the people refused to obey. All right. You are just, O Holy One. You are who you are and who were. In passing the sentence, for they have shed the blood of the Holy Ones and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, is what they deserve. And then I heard the altar cry out, Yes, Lord God Almighty, your judgments are true and just. The first four, remember, as I've said in the, with the seals and also the trumpets, the first four were generally actions against the land or against the people on the land. All right, and that's what you have here. But they are repeats 
of the plagues of Moses, the ones that were really brought against the Egyptians who kept or were made the Israelites captives at that particular time. And there were the ten plagues, and I think we talked about this before. Water turned to blood was the first one. And then we had frogs and gnats and flies. Well, obviously, if you're going to have all of that, you're going to have pestilence, which was the next one. And then uh, hail, boils, hail, locusts, and the darkness of three days was the ninth plague, which we will see a repeat in here. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Its kingdom was plunged into darkness. The people bit their tongues in pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, but they did not repent. And I think I skipped uh, the fourth bowl here. Um, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. It was given the power to burn people with fire. People were burned by the scorching heat, blasphemed the name of God who had power over these plagues, but they did not repent or give him glory. And this is not unusual. This is not unusual. People who are faced with a number of problems often give up. Rather than turning to God, they will automatically give up and even go into worse problems or create more. Simply, it's sort of human nature in a way. When you are faced with so many disastrous situations, uh, you have a tendency to say, what's the use? And you sort of just give in and give up. Right? Uh, just look at those people that suffered the uh, tornadoes in the Midwest through Oklahoma and in that whole section just the other day. Tremendous destruction. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of those people were evil. But it is God's way of saying that this earth and this life is temporary. And it should cause people to turn to God for guidance and direction. One of the guidance and directions that they should get is, why did they move there in the first place, you know? <laughs> but uh, that's only my opinion, you know. Hmm? Well, yeah, we have earthquakes here, but uh, a lot of people say the same thing. Yes, you're right. I've, I've, been, I've been in two of the various serious ones here. So I understand. Uh, but can you see people being faced with problems? And they seem to be so overwhelming. Rather than turning to God, they just give up and continue whatever they were doing in the first place. It's unfortunate. Uh, and you'll see that the people in Oklahoma will clear away all that stuff and build uh, right back on the same property again. And one person was talking about has been through the same thing about five times now. 
you have the same thing with the people in New Orleans. Uh, you know, they built on land that was below sea level, and then they wonder why uh, they got flooded out. And then they cleared the land and, and built over again on the same spot. Uh, it really doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's human nature, unfortunately. And I think that's our problem to begin with. We're human. Uh, the sixth angel emptied his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its waters were dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. Let's go back here. Uh, the sixth angel emptied his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Well, Euphrates, of course, is the boundary of Iran. So we're talking about people way outside of the Roman Empire. Uh, but if you recall way back in the first part of our lessons, I talked about the Parthians, the people who had waged war against Rome, uh, the Roman Empire, that is, uh, in the first century around the year 62, I think it was. Uh, and they did a great deal of damage. They didn't quite conquer the Roman Empire, uh, but they sure did a lot of damage. Uh, they were people from the area of Iran and Iraq. Because those countries did not exist by that name at that time, but there were a number of people there who were great, quite powerful. And eventually, uh, Rome was finally sacked and destroyed by people from that same area, but not until the 6th century AD. Uh, verse 14. These were demonic spirits who performed signs. They went out to the kings of the whole world to assemble them uh, for battle on the great day. We're talking again about the tribes from uh, the Euphrates area. Okay. They went out uh, to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who watches and keeps his clothes ready so that he may not go naked and people see him exposed. And then they assembled the kings in the place that is named Armageddon in Hebrew. Anyone know where Armageddon is? You have your uh, little map that I had given you of the area way back in the first. This this map here.
this, I'm sorry, this is not going to show it as I expected it to. There was another map, I think, that we gave you. Maybe it was in another section. Don't worry about it. Uh, well, I was going to do something. Oh, I can still do it here. If you take this word, Armageddon, which is up here, you take off that, you take off that, and you change that to an I, and you add another G in there, Megiddo. Megiddo is a large battlefield northwest of Jerusalem. Between Jerusalem, I mean between, uh, yeah, Jerusalem and Galilee, there is a large plain there, which was a famous battlefield uh, where several battles had taken place earlier. And in each one of those battles, the Israelites lost. This is where King Josiah was uh, slain by King uh, Nico of Egypt. So it is Megiddo. It became synonymous with disaster. Armageddon is used in a, in a uh, apocalyptic way to just make it a little bit more mysterious, you might say. The reference there is disaster. And that is where, when you hear the word Armageddon today, we're talking about disaster, but would without any definition as to what side is going to win and what side is not. Okay. But that is the only meaning in this book. They then assembled the kings in the place that is called Armageddon or disaster. Okay. The seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, Now it is done. Then there were lightning flashes, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. It was such a violent earthquake that there has never been one like it since the human race began on earth. The great city was split into three parts, and the Gentile cities fell. But God remembered great Babylon, giving it the cup filled with the wine of his fury and wrath. Every island fled. The mountains disappeared. Large hailstones like huge weights came down from the sky on the people, and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because 
this plague was so great and they did not repent. Uh, this is to signify, according to the book of Revelation and the whole idea of apocalyptic language, it's to signify the end of time, the end of the world. That's the only place you're going to see that in this book. A lot of people have said to me after we've gotten through, well, it doesn't talk about the end of the world and when the end of the world is going to be. And I'm saying that is not part of the message of this book. All it's saying is that there will be an end. It doesn't say when. And, you know, you can go through that and mince every word and still not find any clue as to when, because that's not important. As we've said last week, the end of the world is when you die. That's the end for you. And that's all you need to worry about. The rest of us, you know, carry on. And we will all reach that point at some time in our life. And we will have to worry about what is our condition and our relationship with Christ, with God, at that time. But we can't wait to the last minute because we never know when the last minute is going to be. Uh, the story goes that Emperor Constantine became a Catholic and was converted through the efforts and the long-suffering prayers of his mother in the same way that St. Augustine also was converted through the long-suffering prayers of his mother. But Constantine did not want to be baptized. And when asked why he refused or wanted, didn't want to be baptized, he said, well, I don't want to be baptized until just before I die so that I can go straight to heaven. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> that might sound good. That might sound like a, it's a reasonable thing, but the point is none of us know when that time is going to happen. Those people who are told by their doctor uh, that they only have a short time to live and should prepare themselves for the end are really fortunate because at least they have some warning and some measure of time. You know, the doctors will usually say somewhere between three and six months. I've heard that and I've had a dear friend that uh, I was there when the doctor told her. Um, and in a way, it's kind of frightening, but yet at the same time, it gives you a measure of, of time to take care of things and get your affairs, particularly your relationship with God, straightened out and in good shape. And God has given us many, many ways to help us through that. 
but you can't count on that. And that is the unfortunate part. You can't count on knowing within three to six months of when you're going to die. Nobody can. So the point is, be prepared beginning today. And that is what Lent is all about. All right, well, well let me stop there, Mike. Uh, first of all, God never permits anybody to kill anyone else, period. That is uh, a misconception if, if it appears that way. Um, people will take it upon themselves. The Jews had no legal right to kill anyone without Rome's permission. But they disobeyed that right and left. Um, so I don't know whether that answers your question or not, uh, but that's kind of, let's leave it at that for now. I want to get into something that's a little more pertinent to Revelation. Um, not that I want to cut your questions off, because I'm going to ask you some questions. I want to do a little review um, of where we are so far. We have uh, extra time today because these two chapters were somewhat short and somewhat repetitive um, for us who have gone this far. So I want to do some review here. Okay? And uh, as this lady brought up, let me ask the first question. Who do you think John, the seer, has mentioned in the first part of this book? Who is he? Anyone have an idea? The one who has received all of these visions. And of course, he, remember, was instructed to write to the seven churches. Yeah. All right. Who is that person? Uh, he's, uh, he's one of the apostles who gave his love. Uh, Alright, so you're saying it was John the Apostle. Yes. Alright, the son of Zebedee. Uh, who else? Now, there's no right or wrong to this, you know, to this question. I just want to see what your thoughts are. What's that? A person that's close to John the Apostle. A person that is close to John the Apostle. All right, that, that makes sense. We don't. That's why I'm saying there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah. All right. That's right. We don't know for sure. What we're trying to get to is what is the majority of your thoughts on who this person is. We don't, we don't know that it was John, but we, we know what, we don't know who he is, but we know he wasn't John because of his style of writing and comparing this John to, to the other John. He was this John Apostle who doesn't identify himself. So through his writing, it doesn't look like by the way he writes and identifies himself that he is John the Apostle. 
Uh, that's that's reasonable. That's reasonable. Yeah, the style of writing says that it is probably not John the Apostle. All right. Yes, Matt. Uh, maybe uh, John had talked to God, and he has told him to tell the people to get prepared. Well, that's true. Yeah, but we're trying to figure out who is this person. <laughs> <laughs> the local tax collector. <laughs> okay. As I mentioned before, one of the writers of one of those many books that I've uh, read on this subject emphatically said it was John the Baptist. And I thought, hmm, he, he hasn't read the rest of the, of the Bible because John the Baptist died long before Christ did. We know he was an exile in Patmos. He was on exile in Patmos, yes. Uh, for what reason why he was exiled, I don't know. Uh, because he taught things that were not acceptable. Yeah. Uh, any other? All right. Now, like I said before, there's no right or wrong answer. You're all entitled to think who this person is. Uh, but most theologians believe that it is neither John the Baptist nor John the Apostle, simply because of the style of writing, as mentioned earlier. Uh, now, there is another theory that it is could be a person, you know, that is not named John at all. In this time period, in literary writings of the first uh, century BC or first century AD, it was not unusual to write something and apply the name of somebody who is well already well known to get it authorized or accepted. So it could be somebody whose name was, you know, Peter, John, or Jack, or Billy or whatever, uh, and he uses the name John more or less because of the uh, connection to God through the apostle as well as the Baptist. All right. So again, it's not really important who this person is. Again, it's the message that's important. Gene. Well, that's that's a possibility too. Yeah, there could be more than one writer, although it doesn't appear to be because the, the writing is so consistent. Yeah. Oh, I'll be a woman. Oh. Dick. We know that he was of Jewish heritage because he knew the Bible inside and out. Yes. And, and we knew that he had to know the apostles or some of them. So we know quite a bit about this individual, but we don't know who he is. That's right. 
another point that is made not so much in the book, but in the variety of books that I did read, several of the commentators said that the Greek, remember this, all of the New Testament was written in Greek. And many of the commentators say that the Greek used to write Revelation is the poorest Greek in all of the New Testament. So that implies that this person was uh, no doubt a Jew with limited knowledge of Greek. I think this is more like the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah was written for 300 years. Yes. And it's not only Isaiah who wrote. That's right. Yes, yes. Vito just mentions that we have the same thing in uh, the prophet Isaiah. Actually, prophet Isaiah uh, covers a large uh, time or period of time. <clears throat> and we know that there's at least three different writers uh, for various parts of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 39 is called Isaiah of, I of Israel. Uh, chapters uh, 40 through 55 is another chapter or, or a section of um, Isaiah that was written uh, several years after the first part. And then you have chapters 56 through 66 was written uh, about 100 years after that. So yes, you have the same kind of thing there. So there may be three different prophets? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Mike. That's that's a possibility. Yes. Yes. Uh, the time period of writing is probably in uh, the last twenty years of the uh, first century, because he mentioned certain things that. Uh, obviously happened later in, in that century after the time of Christ. All right, let's move on to another one. This book mentions several visions. It has a vision about God commanding John to write letters to seven churches and several other visions. What kind of visions do you think these are? Are these visual? In other words, uh, something that we would see, like almost like television. God forbid that they would be written by Hollywood. Um, or are these uh, spiritual? These are mental uh, things that come to a person uh, seriously. Or are they just literary devices? Again, there is no right or wrong answer. I just want to hear what you have to say about that. Dreams. All right. Very vivid dreams. That that sounds reasonable, Gene. Um, 
That's that's a possibility. So that would work into dreams also. Yes, Betty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. A literary device, but inspired by God, as is all of the Bible. Okay. Now, how do the letters to the seven churches fit with the rest of this book? It seems to be quite a departure in a way. Anyone have a thought about that? Hmm? I'm sorry. The letters were like warnings. The letters, yes, the definitely the letters are warnings. Okay. All right. And that's a good point because it does fit in to what I think the explanation is. Remember, seven was a word that implies all or complete. The seven churches really represent not just those specifically, uh, those specific communities in Asia Minor, but is implied to mean all churches for all time. In other words, the following or what came after those seven letters uh, and the warnings that were in those seven letters really apply <clears throat> to all Christians at all locations for all time. Does that make sense? All right. Because if they applied only to those particular locations, then it would, the rest of the Christian population would say, well, ho-hum, that doesn't apply to us. Uh, and that's not true. Because what comes after those seven letters is far more important than the specifics within those letters themselves. But remember the last letter? Anyone remember the very important phrase, behold, I stand knocking at the door. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and dine with him or her. Okay. It's actually Jesus wanting to come into your heart. That is the meaning of that particular passage in that letter. And there is a very famous picture of Jesus standing outside of the door, you know, ready to knock on it, but there is no handle on the door, so it has to be opened from the inside, which is implying that we have to deliberately want Jesus to come into our heart and guide us through life. All right, do you understand the three sets of warnings, that is, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls? 
you understand the meaning or the message that is contained in the story here of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Remember, they're almost identical with, you know, different uh, wording used, but they really aren't that much different. They are announcements, yes, by all means. Now, but why? And why three? Yes, it's a, it's, it's a literary device that is emphasizing the importance of God's ability to punish. That's what it's all about. It's not saying that God is going to do those things, but the ability to punish on a very large scale a large number of people. And unfortunately, some innocent people will get caught up in that form of punishment. But those people will be blessed. So the idea of three times of saying almost the same thing was part of the series of seven. Remember, seven was split into four and three, four pertaining to things reflecting on earth, and three are warnings from heaven, one form or another. That's why you have three. Uh, the also is the idea that one would probably not be enough in the way of warnings, and therefore three should be sufficient. Yeah, sometimes you just don't get it. The first, second time, maybe you get it the third time. Well, let's hope by the third time. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Now, do you understand what the message of Revelation, the main message of Revelation is all about? One word. One word would... Be prepared, yes, which includes repenting. <laughs> you, you, you just shot my whole lesson. <laughs> Jennifer? question is, do I feel, did the writer really understand what he was writing when he wrote them? Yeah. Probably not all the, the depth of it, because it really takes some thinking through. It's not something that you can read it and say, oh yeah, got it. Yeah, it's something that requires pondering, meditating on, and I think, you know, the seriousness of it can be removed 
but the message still remains. And I think that's really what it's all about. Uh, no, I, I would probably say the writer probably did not. But by the time he got through with writing this, because writing anything this long on parchment or whatever material they used at that time uh, would have taken a fair amount of time. And I think you'd be trembling by the end of it. Yeah. But um, the message, yes, be prepared. All right, it is two words, sorry. <laughs> Now, do you understand, or what do you think that the word revelation means as it is used in the title of this last book of the Bible? What is the meaning of revelation as you understand it now? End of time. End of time, all right. End of time. Justin? Message of Jesus revealed. Okay, the message of Jesus revealed. Okay. Again, there's no right or wrong answer, but I want to hear what you are getting out of this. Dick? Oh, it was the words right up front of the old English version is called the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ is the official title a lot of people will call it just the apocalypse which is the translation uh, back into Greek okay. the word revelation translated back into the original Greek comes out apocalypse yeah Mike I'm sorry? Uh, okay. Uh, someone else back there? Yes? That, all right. That, that's a good point. It shows another way of God being willing to forgive if we go through the whole idea of repentance. Yes, and I would agree with that. The book of, uh, or the Gospel of John comes very close to this, and that's why so many people think it's by the same writer. Uh, because the Gospel of John is, as I said earlier, God who, it's an explanation of God who came to the earth for the purpose of saving mankind. That's all summed up in the uh, John chapter 3 verse 16 that it says, God so loved the world, loved the people of the world is what it should, it means. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that, you know, as a sacrifice so that we might have uh, the opportunity to return 
to the Father for eternal life. Uh, I'm putting my own, some of my own spin on that, but nevertheless, uh, that's what it meant. So the whole idea of revealing a different way to look at Christ is what the word revelation means. Yes. Yes, very much so. And that's, of course, how all of the seven letters uh, end. Yes. Whoever has ears ought to hear. In other words, pay attention because this is the last time in the Bible you're going to be warned. But it is, uh, as I said, another way of looking at Christ and having him reveal his willingness to go to almost any length to accept people back who are truly sorry for their sins and repent of any evil that they may have done in the past and follow him from that point on. Now, yes, Dick? Uh Uh-oh. I don't see Christ in Revelation. I see God in Revelation. Uh, you're, you're, you got a point there. Yes. Yes. Uh, Dick's point is that he sees God rather than just Jesus Christ. But again, it is through Christ that we return to God. Yeah. It is through, yes, the Lamb of God. It is through Christ that we return to God. So, yes, the message is from God, but Christ is God. And Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Yes. God is perfect love, but also perfect justice. That's right. You know, the pendulum on that subject swings back and forth over a period of time. When I was a youngster, way back in, you know, the last century, the last millennium, (laughs) uh, it was hell and damnation, you know, if you don't do, if you, you know, you couldn't eat meat on Friday, but if you ate a hot dog by mistake and died on Saturday, you know, you you had it right then and there. You know. No, 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 no. But now the pendulum is swinging the other way. God is love. God is love. You know, and regardless of what you do, oh, just God is just going to love you. No, no, no. Uh-uh. God is not changed at all. It is the way mankind has looked at it. In Hebrews it says, God is the same yesterday and today and forever. The same. And God, as Vito just pointed out, God, yes, is perfect love. He condemns no one. We condemn ourselves. And God is also perfect justice. There are limits to that love. And we have to observe those limits That is shown by the whole idea of Adam and Eve being expelled from the Garden of Eden, which was sort of an analogy 
for heaven. Up till that time of their sin, they walked and talked and ate and whatever with God uh, because they were perfect and had access to God immediately whenever they wanted. But after sin, God had to separate himself because the laws of divinity do not permit God to live and exist with simple mankind for any length of time. And so the whole idea of the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden was because not that they ate an apple. The word apple and the kind of fruit is not mentioned in any Bible that I'm aware of. But they disobeyed a direct command from God. That was their sin. That direct command is God set up boundaries. We all need boundaries. And if we transgress those boundaries, we have to suffer the consequences. And they transgressed the boundaries. God forbid them to eat the fruit of a particular tree. Now, that's a simple thing, but it's not so much the eating of it, it is why they did it. Because the devil said, you know, they would be like gods, and they would be equal to gods, knowing right from wrong. Well, they found out what right and wrong was all about. But part of the consequences is they were expelled from the Garden of Eden and put out. Now, God didn't leave them alone. said, goodbye, children, you've had it, you know, and I've had it with you. No, no, no. That was signified by his making clothes for them and looking after them continually. God looks after all of us and makes things available to us in order to administer his forgiveness. But we have to do certain things. And that's really the whole message of the book of Revelation. And it is it is placed as the last book of the Bible, not because it was the last one written. We feel that the Gospel of John was probably written afterwards, and some of John's letters were written afterwards, as well as some of the others that are attributed uh, to Paul, but probably were not written by Paul. Those came afterwards. Uh, it's placed as the last book of the Bible because, as I've said many times before, it is the last time we are being warned in such a way that repentance and penance, which are not the same thing, but are closely related, are extremely important keys to our being accepted into heaven. And that is what Lent is all about. And therefore, we should take it seriously. Lent is not just a time that we have to give up this or give up that. In fact, giving up things is not that important for adults. You know, we give up all 
carbohydrates because they might make us fat, you know. <laughs> we give up television because it doesn't make sense in the first place. Um, why do you, what is your version of why do so many people don't believe in God? Is it they don't have time for him or they don't want the change or what? Well, I think your second uh, suggestion is very close. They don't want to change their ways of doing things. They want the freedom to do whatever they want when they want it. And that is not conducive to loving thy neighbor. Okay? Uh, that's as close as we can get to it. Going back to Lanza, I just read Isaiah chapter 58. It's really great. It's about two and fasting and worship. Yes. Yeah. Which is beautiful. Yeah, that would be something that all of you should look at, Isaiah chapter 58. But there's several passages uh, throughout the Bible that are conducive to meditating or meditation uh, during Lent. Uh, the little black book that was available uh, in the back of the church, and there might still be copies back there, uh, has daily meditations that probably don't take more than five minutes, but are worth uh, pursuing. And I would really recommend that you all get a copy of that little black book. Uh, it doesn't contain names and dates and places. Uh, it just, just offers uh, great suggestions for meditation during life. Uh, any questions? Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the time. We thank you for the time to think about our relationship with you and where it is. We thank you for the time to improve on that relationship or to repair it if it's needed. Therefore, we thank you for time. Help us then to understand where we stand with you. Give us the inspiration of knowing what is right and what is wrong and where we can improve our relationship with you. So we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessings on our effort as we continue our study of the book of Revelation. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.